Today we'll be reading from Luke chapter 16, verses 23 through 29. Reading in Jesus' name. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus, Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in his like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Please bow in a word of prayer. Father God, I just pray today that you help us live in a way that is good, right, true, and pleasing to you, and that we fight Satan and his temptations. I pray for Pastor Stroud today as he delivers your message, and that you lay your hand upon him as we broaden and deepen our understanding of your word. In your son's precious name, amen. Have you ever had a cancer scare? I had when we were living in California, I had a scare. I had been having a persistent cough for about three months and I couldn't figure out what was causing it. Then my voice began to change. People would say, Pastor Scott, you sound very hoarse, are you sick? And then I started to get fatigued in the afternoon. These three symptoms happened to be the most common early indicators of lung cancer. But as soon as I discovered all of this and went to the doctor, I also found out that they're the most common symptoms of classic acid reflux. <laughs> well, nothing gets you thinking about eternity quite like a cancer scare. And those events probably prepared me for this message today much more than even the best commentaries could. And this morning, I would like to start out by establishing a foundation of why it's important to study the afterlife. And after that, we're gonna be looking at the two destinations in the afterlife. Today, we're gonna to be looking at the destination of hell, and then next week, heaven, because kind of a bad news first kind of guy. And so, why do we study the afterlife? First of all, we recognize that the majority of our existence is in the afterlife. When I was researching on lung cancer, I saw numerous testimonies on YouTube of people who were battling cancer. And one of the things that I noticed about them is that they were all relatively young people. I didn't see any 89-year-olds declaring that they were going to defeat cancer. 
And the obvious reason for this is that by the time somebody reaches their 80th birthday, they expect that something is probably going to take them out, whether it's cancer or a heart attack or a stroke. And by that time, they feel like they've lived a pretty good long life. But the truth is, they have not had a long life, especially in light of eternity. In fact, even if someone happened to beat the record for the oldest human being recorded in modern history, which is held by Jean Calment of France, who lived to be 122 and a half years old, that would still be only a drop in the ocean of eternity. The biggest problem is that all of our experience is in this life. We see loved ones move away. We see people getting sick and dying. Relationships eventually come to an end. And so, to study eternity is to focus on the reality that our lives will come to an end, whether it's at 52 or 92. Secondly, we study the afterlife because the Bible encourages it. In Psalm 90, verse 12, David says, Teach us to realize the brevity of life, or the number of our days, so that we may grow in wisdom. And so to recognize that our life is short and that our days are numbered is wisdom. We understand that we only have so much time to live in this life, and that should cause us to live our lives in a certain kind of way. Titus 2.13 says, We wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, what are we waiting for? Are we waiting for our 401k to get big enough that we can retire comfortably? Are we waiting for that big retirement home? Are we waiting for all the events of our life to line up in such a way that we are ultimately happy in that moment? No, we're not waiting for those things. We are waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's our hope. And this is realized much more so in those who are suffering in this life. Take, for instance, the African-American slaves in America. You think about the songs that they sang and their worship services. Many of the songs they sang were focused on eternity. They were focused on the afterlife because they were suffering so greatly in this life. They didn't have much to look forward to in this life. They were working for someone else. They were passing on nothing to their children. Think of the Christian martyrs back in the early New Testament times. What did they have to look forward to? Death in the Colosseum for many. And so as you get older and your suffering increases and your body begins to break down and you can't do the things that you used to do or you don't even really enjoy them that much anymore, it helps us to look to the future the eternal future. And I think that's why God allows us to get old. <laughs> because if we stayed in our ultimate fit shape and had everything that we wanted and needed in this life, why would we look forward to eternity? And so our hope is in eternal life as we face the trials and we lose loved ones around us. The next reason to study uh, eternity 
is it's very fun to talk about and it's very terrible to talk about. It's my favorite and least favorite subject, both together. In Romans 8, 22 through 23, it says, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Have you ever had a week or a month or whatever where things were going fine, but you still felt depressed? You still felt like, is this all there is? The reason for that is because you are groaning inwardly. Your spirit is groaning because it has the first fruits of eternity within it. And you're waiting for the redemption of your body. You don't want this body anymore. You want your new immortal body. So much better by far. And even unbelievers are interested in the afterlife. I've had situations where I've been talking to an unbeliever, and I'll say something along these lines. Do you believe in God and the afterlife? No, I don't believe in that. If you die today, where will you go? Oh, I'm going to heaven for sure. <laughs> don't believe in God, don't believe in the afterlife, but they're going to heaven. And I'm like, well, what are you basing that on, right? And so even unbelievers have this understanding of eternity. And the reason that we know they do is because in the book of Ecclesiastes, it says that God has written eternity in the hearts of men. And so if you talk to somebody and they say, I don't believe in the afterlife, they're lying. <laughs> because God has written it on their hearts. We are the only creatures in all of creation that are considering what's going to happen after I die. Dogs, cats, you know, animals, plants, they just die, and as far as we know, right? But we are concerned about that. We write books, we write poems, we, write, we do movies, we talk about eternity all the time. And so, what are these two destinations? And there's only two, by the way. The first one is a place called hell. In the Old Testament, we don't see a lot written about hell. We see a place called Sheol, which is translated as the grave. And in the Old Testament, it's seen as a voracious monster that's eating up everything. The grave takes everybody eventually. And it's a place of darkness and stillness as being cut off from God, as we see in Psalm 139, verse 8. Although David there says, though I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. And so even the grave cannot keep us from a loving God. For most of the Old Testament, it was seen as a permanent place of the dead. And yet we saw sometimes glimpses of a hope of redemption. Like Job in Job 19.26. He says, after my skin is destroyed, the worms eat it, all that kind of stuff, yet in my flesh I will see God. He had a hope of seeing God in his new body. God had revealed that to him, that that was going to happen. And God sometimes, twice that we know of, interfered with death. 
right? We see the first time with Enoch. It says he walked with God and was no more because God took him. Okay, they couldn't find him. Where's Enoch? You know, God took him. Also, we saw with the case of Elijah. He's walking along with his, uh, his kind of prodigy, Elisha, and then the chariots of fire come down and swoop and pick him up, and he didn't die. Went right from this life into the next life. And by the way, we're going to be talking about this in the future when we talk about the end times. That's what's going to happen with you if you're around when Jesus returns. You'll be changed in an instant, not die, and be meeting God and our Jesus in the air along with those who've passed before. There's a couple of misunderstandings about the afterlife that we need to address for a moment. The first of all, um, of which is called purgatory. This is a Catholic teaching. And according to their uh, catechism, they believe that pur uh, purgatory is a purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven, which is, to, is experienced by those who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified. It notes that this final purification of the elect is entirely different from the punishment of the damned. So they believe that there's a place that you go that you need to be cleaned up more because you didn't get cleaned up enough in this life, all right? And scriptures that they cite are some of these. Revelation 21, 27, which says, nothing unclean will enter the kingdom of heaven. And so they say, so we'll see there, nobody dies perfectly, so they need to be sanctified further for 100 years, 1,000 years, whatever it might be, in order to be able to be ready for the kingdom of heaven. But there's a big problem with something called proof texting, okay? Proof texting is when you take a short little passage of the Bible and you build an entire doctrine on it. And the problem with this verse is they don't even go on to the second half of the verse, which says, only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life so nothing unclean will enter it, only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And so the question is, how do I get into heaven? <laughs> do I get into heaven by being good and cleaned up and sanctified in the fire, or through the Lamb's Book of Life? Your place in heaven is secure because Christ died for you, and your name currently, once you place the trust, your trust in the Lord, is written in his book. That's why you get into heaven. Another verse cited is Luke 12, 59. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Okay? In context, Jesus there is actually talking about an earthly thing. If somebody comes against you and takes you to the judge on the way to court, work things out. Because if you don't work it out on the way to court, they're going to get every last penny and finally throw you in prison. So he's talking about an earthly thing, and they take it out of context to mean something about heaven. Also, 1 Peter 3.19, it talks about the spirits, or Jesus proclaiming to the spirits that are in prison. That's where we actually, when we look at the Apostles' Creed, it says he descended into hell. That's where we get that from, is that passage. But what actually happened there? Jesus went down and he proclaimed to the spirits in hell, those demons and the devils that were chained there in gloomy darkness the victory that he had gotten over death and Hades. Also in 1 Corinthians 15, 29, it says that uh, Paul actually here is talking to the uh, church in Corinth about the baptism for the dead. 
Okay, so they were doing something, a practice. They were baptizing live people in place of people who had died and not gotten baptized. Okay, the only problem with that is that Paul actually doesn't say do this. He's saying you are doing this, and yet you don't believe in the resurrection. Why don't you believe in the resurrection if you're baptizing for the dead? And so you don't want to make a doctrine off of one obscure passage, and yet they take that and run with it. Oh, see, they're baptizing for the dead. That means we can do something for the dead after they're gone. Another practice that they have is called indulgences. All right, Indulgences is when you pay money for your dearly departed loved one who's in purgatory to get out early. Okay? So pay 100 bucks and knock 100 years off a of grandma's sentence or something like that, right? Doesn't make any sense at all. That's not how you get to heaven, by paying money. You get to heaven because of the debt that's been paid for you by Christ on the cross. And so we believe that that is not a correct teaching. That's not how you get cleaned up. And so there's arguments against it. 2 Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. As a believer, as soon as you leave your body, meaning your spirit, your soul, leaves the body when you die, you're with the Lord. You're not in purgatory being burned you know, and purified. You're with the Lord. And in fact... We see that in Luke 23, 43, the thief on the cross, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, if anybody needed to be cleaned up, it's a thief who just got saved two minutes beforehand, right? And what they teach is that all these saints who've gone before have extra righteousness. And you can get some of that by paying money and get your loved ones out of purgatory early. Now we're going to look at probably the most unpopular doctrine in the entire Christian realm. Hell. No preacher I know of likes to preach on this. Because nobody wants to see their loved ones in a place like this. They don't want to see their loved ones in hell. And there are three views, main views, of hell. The first view is what's called the traditional view, or the classic view. That's what I'm going to be talking about today. Another view is called the annihilationist view, or conditional immortality view. They believe that instead of burning in hell forever and torment, you are annihilated, destroyed, and you cease to exist any longer. And then finally, there is what's called uh, the Christian universalist view, this is different than universalism where they say all roads lead to God. What they say in Christian universalism is that even those in hell will eventually be sprung out because they'll end up placing their trust in Christ after the fact. All right. So those are the three main views which are held by a lot of people in a lot of different camps, even in the early church history. All right. The reason that I believe in the traditional view, even though I don't want to believe it, <laughs> I want to believe that everybody gets out eventually, right? Yeah, suffer for a thousand years if you're Hitler, but eventually you're going to come around, right? But unfortunately, I don't see it in the Bible. I don't see it when you look at the entire context of the scriptures. And even the annihilationist view is better, right? Suffer for a bit and then you're done, OK? 
Okay, finally it's over. But I want you to think about Revelation 14, 11. This is talking kind of specifically about the beast and the false prophet, those who followed after him. But it also expands to those who have the devil as their father. Because you go where your father goes. Right? If your father is God, you go to be with God. If your father's the devil, you go to be with the devil. And by the way, some Jewish leaders who thought God was their father, that wasn't their father. Because Jesus said, you follow your father, the devil. And you follow him all the way to the end. It says there, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. This is those who are thrown in the lake of fire. No rest day or night. If you're annihilated, you're finally at rest. <laughs> right? We talk about that. Oh, he's resting in death now. But it doesn't seem to be the case here. They're tormented day and night, forever and ever, with no rest. That's not fun to think about. But it's sobering and it needs to be talked about because there are people out there today that need to hear the message. The Bible tells us, do not fear man who can kill the body once. Rather, fear him who can kill the body and afterwards throw you into the lake of fire the second death. That's who you want to fear. And you want to have fear. There's a godly fear that we need to have. And so what can an unbeliever expect in hell? We're going to look briefly at the passage that Rachel just read in Luke 16. And first of all, this is a true story. All right, This is not a parable. The reason we know this is not a parable is a couple of reasons. First of all, he names somebody, Lazarus. In every other situation where he's telling a parable, he doesn't name anybody. And usually in his parables, he says something like this, the kingdom of God is likened unto a field, a sheep pen, a door, whatever. And he uses very uh, analogy kind of language. In this situation, he's basically saying, this is a real place, you don't want to go there. Okay? And so here's Lazarus, and a rich man. Lazarus is laying at his door day after day, and both of them die around the same time. And I want you to first of all notice in verse 23, it says that he's in torment. Have you ever been in torment in your life? Yes, you have. If you're a human being, living on this earth, you have had some level of torment. Whether it's some pain in your body, an emotional thing that you're going through, a relationship that was lost, a loved one that died, whatever it might be, to some degree, you've been able to have an experience of torment. Here, it's an everlasting torment because there's no reprieve from it. You're not getting out. <laughs> And notice it says that he wants his tongue cooled, right? He's in torment because of his tongue, what his tongue says and what it said on this earth and what it continues to say, by the way, beyond. Many people say, well, how can somebody be punished for just such a short time on earth for eternity? And they don't understand that the sinning keeps on going in eternity, it's not like somebody said, oh, finally, God, I will trust you and believe. No, they're cursing God in hell. Right? 
And so the sinning just keeps on going, even in hell. Next we see that he sees what he missed out on. We see this in verse 23b here. And being in, uh, in Hades in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Right? That'd be even worse, seeing what you missed. <laughs> right over there. I don't know how far it is or whatever. Now, this is in Hades, by the way. This isn't the lake of fire, which is the eventual. But in Revelation, we see that death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire eventually. So right now, there's a place called Hades, which is a waiting place for both the righteous and the unrighteous. You have paradise and hell together there with a chasm separating them, and you can see one another, obviously. Next, we see he has unfulfilled desires in verse 24. Send Lazarus to dip his finger in the water and cool my tongue. Just a little compassion. Just a little something to stop the agony for a moment. Just cool my tongue for a second. What would that actually do? I mean, just for a second like that. But he just, really what he wants is somebody to show compassion and mercy on him for a moment. Unfulfilled desires. And this is the problem with immediate gratification. C.S. Lewis talks about this in his book, The Great Divorce. He talks about things that work backwards. Okay? So let's say you're in your life and you think, I'll just do this sin and I'll enjoy it for the moment. But you don't realize that in hell, it works backwards to sour and taint the moment that you thought was so pleasurable and wonderful, but it also works the other way in righteousness. That thing you suffered in this life so greatly, in heaven it works backwards where that becomes one of the sweetest moments of your life because it's changed in the light of eternity. That's why I can't understand people that talk about, I'm going to party in hell. No, you're not going to party in hell. You're going to be regretting everything that you ever did in this life. And so we see that in verse 25 and 26. He remembers and regrets his former life. He had a chance to be righteous, to reach out to this poor guy at his door every single day, and yet he ignored him. Also, he has fears about his unsaved relatives. Please send Lazarus back. <laughs> Knows he can't go. He's stuck. And tell my five brothers about this place so they don't come here. But what Abraham says is basically, even if somebody rose from the dead, which by the way, somebody did, Jesus, <laughs> and tells them about that awful place, they're still not going to believe it. Have them look to the prophets. Have them look to the word of God. It's right here in front of them, telling them and warning them about what this place is. So they don't come here. Also, we see it's not in this passage, but in Revelation 20, verse 10, we see that he has unsavory company. The unbeliever is going to be around unsavory company. And I'm not talking about Hitler and, you know, all of these guys. I'm talking about somebody who hates them, wants to kill them, tried to kill them and destroy them in this life, and now they're stuck with them down there forever, the devil and his demons. It's not like we're going to be, you know, and by the way, Satan isn't down there running the joint. You know, you see these cartoons with Satan with the pitchfork and he's poking people. No, he's the one suffering the worst. 
He's in the lowest of the lowest spots in the lake of fire. Because he was the highest angel, one of the highest archangels. Unsavory company. I don't want to be around those guys forever. And finally, he's separated from God forever. Actually, this is the worst of the worst part. Even unbelievers in this life still receive the blessing of God. The Bible tells us that the rain falls on the just and the unjust, meaning your unbelieving pagan neighbor gets the rain and the blessings and wonderful life and you know, family and all of these things just as much as you do. But in the end, in the afterlife, which goes on forever, they're cut off from any blessing from God. Because you can only be blessed in the place that God is. They're separated from him forever. Do you know I deserve that? Every person sitting in here today deserves to be there because of our sin and our rebellion against the Lord, against the creator of the universe. I see it every single day. But ultimately, most people are going to be going to that place, hell. And we know this because in Matthew 7, 13, through 14, it says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate, and narrow is the way that leads to life, and only a few find it. And you know the sad part? Many churches today are opening the broad way to hell. They're not preaching the narrow way. It doesn't matter what you believe in or how you live your life or anything. You'll find God's merciful. He'll, he'll understand. <laughs> then why is the way so narrow? <laughs> and only a few find it. Scary. My children could end up in that place. Your parents could end up in that place. How are we helping people avoid hell? By our lives, we are either proclaiming to them to go to the place called heaven or ignoring them to their detriment in going to hell. Back when I thought I might have cancer, it did a few things to me. First, it caused me to begin to think about my family after I died, how they would be taken care of, you know, and all of that. Secondly, I got kind of excited because I'm like, finally, it's going to be over. <laughs> you know, all the life. And you think, well, pastor, you've got a great life. You don't know the internal things that people go through and how they suffer in this life. And some of it's all on the inside for some people. But honestly, one of the things it caused me to do was to look at my own life and say, if the Lord came right this minute, would I be excited or would I be ashamed of the way I'm living? Whether it was some secret sin or how I was carrying out the Christian life and the walk that was before me. And frankly, I was divided. I thought some things I'd be excited about and some things I'd be ashamed of. And one of the things I would be ashamed of is that I'm not sharing this like I should be, even your pastor. I'm thinking about myself and people's opinion of me when I'm in situations where I know I should be talking to them about this terrible place. And the final question I asked was, does it take a cancer scare 
to finally talk to people? If you know somebody was dying in four months, would you finally talk to them if they were an unbeliever about the Lord? And the main question is, why wait? Why wait till then? Let's pray. Father God, this place is in your word. It's a literal, actual place. And we pray for our loved ones right now that are apart from you. They have not placed their trust in you. They do not believe in you. They are not going to heaven. And Lord, help us in our conversations with them and the way that we live our lives. May we help them to run from that place and the devil and turn to their great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in the power of your name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon series from Elam. If you are encouraged today, would you consider supporting our online ministry through a financial contribution? Personal checks can be made out to Elam Lutheran Church and sent to 11504 26th Street, Northeast, Lake Stevens, Washington, 98258. Or you can give online at elamlutheran.net. Thank you and may God bless you the rest of your day.